0: Back to Course Correction Radio, my friends. Good to have you back with me today. We will be picking up where we left off last time. We talked about the baptism of Jesus, how it related to the transfer of the priesthood. And this week, we will be talking about the temptation of Christ. Now, our first segment will be Christ, the second Adam, and how he relates to Adam, who will succeed. Where Adam failed, so what we're going to do is we're going to come over here to Bible Hub. What I'm going to do is, I'm going to pull that up for you guys so you can see it. Whoops. My bad, guys. Went to the wrong one. There we go. All right, we're going to go. All right, so let's take a look at this. We're going to start out with where, exactly where we left off last week with The genealogy of Jesus, and Jesus himself began to be about thirty years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. A second, Matat, which was the all of this down. And if you look on the screen here, it will take you from the. The supposed lineage of Joseph, but what Luke does here is he focuses on the fact that Jesus was supposed, like he, people supposed that he was the son of Joseph. So Luke's going to use that, even though Jesus wasn't biologically the son of Joseph. Okay, so what's going to happen is we have Joseph, the son of Heli the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of son of Joseph. The son of Mattathias, which was the son of Amos, the son of Nam, the son of, which was the son of Esli, which was the son of Nage, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Judah, the son of Joanna, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel. So now we're getting back to the Babylonian captivity. Selaltiel Neri, which was the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son Ur, which was the son of Jose, which was the son of Eleazar, which was the son of Joram, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Simeon, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Jonan, which was the son of Eliakim, which is the son of Malaya, which was the son of Manon, which was the son of Matha. Which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David, which was the son of Jesse, which was the son of Obed, which was the son of Boaz, which was the son of Salmon, which was the son of Nasan, which was the son of Aminadab, which was the son of Aram, which was the son of Esram, which was the son of Perez, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Jacob, Which was the son of Isaac, which was the son of Abraham, which was the son of Thara, which was the son of Nachor, which was the son of Saruk, which was the son of Ragal, which was the son of Philek, which was the son of Heber, which was the son of Salah, which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Arphaxad, which was the son of Sim or Shem, which was the son of Noah, which was the son of Lamech, which was the son of Methuselah, which was the son of Enoch which was the son of Jared, which was the son of Mahalalel, which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth. And here it is, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. So what Luke does here is he gives us an interesting connection using the supposed lineage of Jesus was actually Jesus lineage used to connect Jesus to Adam. Because next what we're going to do is we're going to get into the temptation of Jesus and see how Jesus is going to succeed in the three points where Adam, through the error of not stopping his wife, because all husbands are, you are the head of your household. Whatever your household does is accounted to you. Um, we know that um, Paul said, through, But through one man sin entered the world, and through sin, death. And we're going to take a look at how that happens through Adam. He's going to fail. Eve's going to be tempted in three points. She's going to fail. Adam's going to fall along with Eve. And these three points are where Adam's going to fail. But as we will see, it's where Jesus succeeds. So Christ succeeded where Adam failed. So the first place we have is he's going to he's going to fall to the lust of the flesh. So before we do that, let's go in and let's read Luke chapter four real quick. Just uh, Luke chapter four, verses one through 13. And Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, if thou be the son of God, command the stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil shewed unto him all the kingdoms of the world, and in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, All shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from thence, for his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands shall they bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering him said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him. So we're gonna break this down. We're gonna compare these three points of temptation to the three points that the devil gave Eve and Adam in Genesis chapter three. So let's uh, let's as a matter of fact, let's pull up another window here, and we're gonna go Bible Hub. By the way, if you guys haven't noticed, I absolutely love Bible Hub because it has a bunch of great resources, and it's absolutely free, easy to use. Everything we'll be talking about today will be just about all of it will be on Bible Hub. So we're going to come in here. We've got the King James Bible pulled up, and we're going to go. Whoops, we were already there. But, oh, well, we'll do it like this. We'll do it the long way just to keep things interesting, right? So our first point of temptation is the lust of the flesh. Now we saw over here in Luke chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 it says and the devil said unto him if thou be the son of god command the stone that it be made bread right so that's luke chapter 4 verse 3 so what we're going to do here is we're going to come over here and we're going to go to genesis chapter 3 6 chapter 3 verse 6 and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food that's number one when she saw that it was good for food to get some context and uh give me just a second guys Sorry about that, guys. Had a little logistic problem. I had to work. read it from, let's read it, uh, the whole thing in context. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But the fruit of the tree, which was in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God. And the woman saw that the tree was good for eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave it unto her husband with her, so we see that Adam was with her and he did eat and the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So now that we've got that, let's hone in. And when the woman saw that the tree was a good for food. So let's head back over here to Luke chapter four, verse three. And the devil said unto him, if thou be the son of God, command this stone that it be made Bread. So the devil tempts Jesus, number one, just like he tempted Adam in food. Lust of the flesh was good for food. And Jesus answered him. Now, this is where Jesus succeeds where Adam fails. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And that is Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8.13 which if you are familiar with the account of Deuteronomy, that was Moses in his farewell speech to the Israelites and said, look, remember the time that ye ate manna in the desert for 40 years because live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So that's temptation. Number one, Jesus succeeds where Adam fails with the lust of the flesh. Whoops, I keep going over there. We'll get there. All right, number two, the number two place where Jesus succeeded Adam and he failed is the lust of the eyes. And this is what Genesis chapter three, verse six says. We saw that when she saw the tree was good for food. Second, she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. So let's head back over here to Luke chapter four, and we're going to pick up. Through eight, And the devil said unto him, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for it is delivered unto me. So what is five? And the devil, taking him up into an high mountain, showed, he showed him, he saw it with his eyes, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, this is interesting because we have all the kingdoms of the world being seen in in a moment of time. And if you read the life and times of Jesus, the Messiah, which is something else you can pull up on Bible hub. Here it is right here. Life and times of Jesus, the Messiah, Alfred Edersheim. This is book three, chapter four, the temptation of Jesus. We'll be getting into some of this, but he makes a really great point in this chapter of the book. And what he shows is that the temptation of Jesus, there was an argument between apparently some of the theologians in his day As to whether or not this happened in the spiritual world or in the physical world. And what Mr. Edersham, with Jesus, it's different. He's both God and man, so it happens in both simultaneously. We see this. The devil taking him up to a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And if you have ever read the book of Enoch, um, just right here in front of me, this is not actually the one I recommend. This is the uh, H. Charles, but it's so cumbersome. The version I've got is like the size of my Strong's Concordance, just about, because it's got other books in it as well. It's just too cumbersome. But if you go to chapter 18 and start in verse, I believe it's verse 6, um, or no, excuse me, it is um, verse 7. And as on, this is talking about the seven mountains. Uh, I proceeded and saw a place which burns day and night, where there are seven mountains of magnificent stones, three towards the east and three towards the south. As for those towards the east, one was of colored stone and one of pearl and one of jacent and those. But the middle one reached to heaven like the throne of God of alabaster and the summit of the throne was of sapphire. Now this is like you see in places like Exodus and Ezekiel and in Revelation where we see the throne of God is that it is made of sapphire. And I saw a flaming fire over all the mountains. Beyond these mountains is the region of the end of the great earth. There the waters collected. So we see that Jesus is having a very similar encounter. He is seeing the the kingdoms of the world from a physical and a spiritual sense. At the For Jesus, the veil doesn't quite affect it as we would. But uh, just wanted to set that up there because I know this is something that probably confuses a lot of people especially if you haven't looked into the topic of biblical cosmology. So anyway, let's up to an high mountain. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for it is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. And I've got this written down. I can never remember this one off the top of my head. There is... That's Deuteronomy chapter six verse thirteen. So that's in the same chapter as the Shema, Hear O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And there, but the, what I want to what I want to see there is the second thing that the devil tempts Jesus with, and I believe this is why Luke writes his order than um, Matthew does, because Matthew has this part about the high mountain last. So Luke has it, saying he does it in this exact order, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And that's what we're going to get into next. But Jesus quotes scripture again. Are you seeing the pattern? Jesus, every time he was assaulted by the devil, he used the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and fought back. So that's, there's, there's the lust of the eyes. And we'll head to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And when the woman saw that it was A, B, it was pleasant to the eyes, and C, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and did eat. So let's head back over to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to pick up in verse 9, which says, and he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down for thence." Now, check this out. The devil misquotes Psalm 91 here. For it is written, he shall give his angels chi, and in their hands shall they bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, said unto him, it is said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. That is Deuteronomy 6, 16. So, so there we go. We have Jesus overcomes, the devil tempts him. We had Psalm 91, which is about Jesus um, and and the remnant that has been preserved through Jesus. He uses that and basically tells him, you know, if you're the son of God, go ahead and do this because these are the things worthy. This is what the very word of God says about the son of God. You know, he'll do this and then he, he takes it out of context to try to tempt Jesus to basically be exalted earlier than the father had planned and quote scripture. So Jesus has overcome the temptation of the pride of life as well. And we know that we can know for certain that this is, this is, these are the area. First uh, John, first John chapter two, verse, uh, verses 15 through 18. It says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in this and be the lust of the eyes. And see, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And the first one to do that will perfectly was Jesus Christ, because he is our example. When we did our interview with Brother David, um, and if, if, if you are one of the followers of this channel that is familiar with the things that Brother David teaches over at FOJC Radio, you know there's three things that we can know about Jesus. He, he gave us the cross, the example, and the doctrine of Christ. Those are the three things we're able to follow. And so right here, we have his example. He quotes the law of God. Everything he quoted was from Deuteronomy, straight out of the law of Moses. Moses. His example is to quote scripture, and we're going to see something interesting in the third segment of today's episode. We're going to see um, something about how he fasted. That's very important to what so, uh, but we see those are the three areas that he succeeded. Jesus successfully overcame everything that was going on here. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to uh, take a quick break. Um, I'm going to grab some water. We're going to go into the second segment, um, which is the temptation of Christ and uh, a very interesting contrast between the true Messiah. So uh, hold on. We'll be right back and we'll pick up there. Don't go anywhere. All right. All right. Thanks for sticking with me um, for that. We're going to go right into the second segment. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to recap with uh, where we pa- where we left off. Second John chapter two verse seventeen: In the world passeth away, and the lust thereof; but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now we know what Jesus said about that. He said over in the Gospel of John chapter eight, verse I believe it's fifty one, eight fifty one. Jesus says, "Verily, verily, I say, if a man keep my words." He shall not. So, with that in mind, let's go into this second segment because we know that um, what awaits those who do not abide in Christ's word. When the man of sin shows up and they take the mark of the beast, there is no returning from that. The second death and the lake of fire await you. So, let's um, let's get right in. All right, so. Let's go over here. We're going to go back here and we're going to jump right into Alfred Edersheim's commentary of this part of the, the Messiah. All right. So, Mr. Eddersham says the proclamation and inauguration of the king of heaven, of uh, the kingdom of heaven, at such a time and under such circumstances was one of the greatest antitheses reverence be it said it was only god who would thus begin his kingdom or even greater antithesis was the commencement of the ministry of christ from the jordan to the wilderness with its wild beast from the devout acknowledgement of the baptist the consecration and filial prayers of jesus the descent of the holy spirit and the heard testimony of heaven to the utter forsakenness, the felt want and weakness of Jesus, and the assaults of the devil. No contrast more startling could be conceived. And yet, as we think of it, what followed upon the baptism followed was necessary as regarded the person of Jesus, that which was to result from it. Psychologically, and as regarded the work of Jesus, critics have perceived its higher need consecration to the kingship of the kingdom Jesus should have all that it implied in a world of sin that the divine method by which the kingdom should be established should have clearly should have been clearly brought out and its reality tested and that the king as representative and founder of the kingdom should have encountered and defeated the representative founder and holder of the opposite power the prince of this world These are the thoughts which muster the mission of Christ, yet this only, as after the events we have learned to know the character of that mission, not as we might have preconceived it, we can understand how a life and work such as that of Jesus would commence with the temptation, but, and this is key, none other than his, Judaism has never conceived such an idea, because it has never conceived a Messiah like Jesus, it is Quite true that long previous biblical teaching and even the psychological necessity of the case must have pointed to the temptation and victory as the condition of spiritual greatness. It could not have been otherwise in a world hostile to God, nor yet in man whose conscious choice determines his position. No crown of victory without previous contest and that proportionately to its brightness, no more ideal without personal attainment and probation. The patriarchs had been tried and proved, so had Moses, and rabbinic legend, enlarging upon biblical narrative, has much to tell of the original envy of the angels and of the assaults of Satan upon Abraham, you can find that in the book of Jasher, and up, up, up Isaac, of attempted resistance by the angels of Israel's reception of the law, and of the final vain endeavor of Satan to take away the soul of Moses. Which is what uh, the book, that's what Jude, apparently that's one of the writings that people say Jude was referencing in his short epistle when he talks about Satan and um, Michael. And Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. Um, So let's skip down a little bit. All right. And he goes on to say, In whatever manner the commencement of his ministry, it cannot be derived from from Jewish legend what in the world just happened sorry about that (laughs) it cannot be derived from Jewish legend so far from any idea obtaining that Satan was to assault the Messiah in a well-known passage which had been previously represented as overwhelmed and falling on his face at the side of him and owning his complete defeat Another point in this history, we find the same inversion of thought current in Jewish legend in the commentary placing of the Messiah on the pinnacle of the temple. So far from being of Satanic temptation is actually said to mark the hour of deliverance of Messianic proclamation and of Gentile voluntary submission. Our rabbis give this tradition In the hour when King Messiah cometh, he standeth upon the roof of the sanctuary and proclaims to Israel, saying, Ye poor suffering, the time of your redemption draweth nigh, and if you believe, rejoice in my light, which is risen upon you. Reference to Isaiah 60, verse 1, upon you only, Isaiah 60, verse 2, in that hour. Will the Holy One, blessed be his name, make the light of the Messiah and of Israel to shine forth. And all shall come to the light of the King of Messiah. Sorry, guys. Give me just a second. Whoops. Whoops. Sorry about that. Baby just woke up from her nap. I apologize. So um, anyway, he was saying, and if you believe, rejoice in my light, which riseth upon you. Isaiah 60 verse 1 and upon you only Isaiah 60 verse 2. In that hour will the Holy One blessed be his name, blessed be his name, make the light of the Messiah and of Israel to shine forth. And all shall come to my light of the King Messiah and of Israel. And it is written, Isaiah 60, verse 3, and they shall come and lick the dust from under the feet of the King of Messiah as it is written, Isaiah 49, 23. And all shall come and fall on their faces before Messiah and before Israel and say, we will be the servants to him and to Israel. And if everyone in Israel shall have 28, to Isaiah 8 or Zechariah eight twenty-three, one more quotation from the same commentary. In that hour, the Holy One, blessed be his name, exalts the Messiah to the heavens of heavens, spreads him over the splendor of his glory because of the nations of the world, because of the wicked Persians. They say to him, Ephraim, Messiah, our righteousness, execute judgment upon them and do to them what thy soul desireth. In another respect to these quotations, these quotations are important. Now listen up to this. They show that such great ideas were indeed present to the Jewish mind, but in a sense opposite to the gospel narratives. In other words, they were regarded as the rightful manifestations of Messiah's dignity, suggestions of Satan, Thus, the Messiah of Judaism is the Antichrist of the Gospels. And so let's see, where is that up here? That is absolutely insane. So there we have it right there. Thus, the Messiah, Christ of... So we need to keep that drawn near if you are not familiar with what I am talking about. If you are new to this idea of biblical prophecy as it is presented, go check out our podcast on it called No Love in the End. You can find it on YouTube or you can find it on on any of our podcast platforms. Just search Course correction Radio. but don't just stick with us. There's other people out there. but more on yourself, read Matthew 24. read Revelation chapter 13. Read. Second, and you'll know what we are referring to. So, and that's actually what we're going to do right now. We're going to go to Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and check that out. And this is what Paul says. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word, nor by no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there be a falling away be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you I told you these things? And know ye now, and now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken away, out until he be taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the work. Uh, after the working of Satan. So Paul knew what was going on in Lying Wonder. So now we know what Paul is referencing here when he says even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. Paul Paul knew, I mean, Paul even said, he said, I am, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. So if these things were going around in the rabbinic oral traditions before finally being codified and written down in the Mishnah and then later in the Babylonian Talmud, we can have an idea that Paul was most likely referring to these very things right here coming after the working of Satan with all powers and sunnets and unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they must cause. Shall God send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. If you are watching this, this Christ, what, please, what are you waiting for? Drop down to your knees, repent of your sins, ask God for forgiveness, believe on the blood of Jesus Christ and take his yoke upon you. Learn from him, be his disciple. So that when this day comes, you will not be deceived to believe a lie and you will be saved from the wrath To come, Don't be the brood of vipers that John talked about. Because if you believe in Jesus and the wrath to come, we talked about in, was it two episodes ago that we talked about Jesus, how he took on the wrath of God upon the cross so that you could be saved. So please, please do not wait any longer. If you have not accepted the gift, the free gift of Jesus Christ upon the cross, do so now. Now we're going to head over to... We're going to head over in a minute. We're going to check out Revelation chapter 13. Well, let's go ahead and do that first. Let's check out Revelation chapter 13 and see what it says over there. Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 11. Go back and read the whole chapter if you have time, but for sake of time, we're going to start with verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. So he's going to look the part. He's going to look messianic. He's going to look like a lamb, but he's going to speak like a dragon. He's going to have that. Did God really say this that we saw in Genesis chapter 3? All power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which are therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. You know, we see Genesis chapter 3. If you finish reading it, one of the curses was that The serpent would bruise the heel of the Messiah, but the Messiah would bruise his head. There's your deadly head wound. The kingdom of Satan is going to resurrect. He doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles, which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image of the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now here we go. And he causes all, both great and small, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand and in, or in their foreheads and that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. If you have not ever read the writings of Irenaeus, Irenaeus does a great job of describing what this number represents as far as the apostasy of the man. How you will know? He says specifically not to focus on translating the name through the number. He said because any combination of names could add, could equal six six six. What he says is look at it this way: you had six hundred years of Noah's life, and that apostasy came to a head, and the flood came. And then with the three score and the six, he says to look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, in Daniel chapter three, when they were thrown into the, um, when they were thrown into the fiery furnace, because the image was two cubits high and six cubits wide. So you have that apostasy there as well. Um, and those are, those are the, the, the examples that Irenaeus says to look into. So you'll recognize, you'll recognize that Babylonian arrogance when you see it. It'll be something like Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. So, um, we see that. Look, guys, this is what's going to happen. So, here's what I want to show you from here. We're going to head back over. We're going to go to the commentaries, and we're going to read Sonians chapter 2. Um, because there is a lot of deception coming. And I'm telling you, if you are in a church that teaches dispensationalism, you better get out before your soul is damned for eternity. on Doctrine in these churches. And I'm going to show you what the writings of a lot of Puritans and a lot of other people are saying on these verses. And we're going to go right over here to verse four. And please look, don't, Don't leave yet. Don't leave. Watch this all the way through. We're going to go over here to uh, Ellicott's commentary for English readers. So let's go down here. Above all that is God. The translation here is not, he says it's not quite exact. The word above is exalteth, or exalted himself above measure where the same compound is used against every God so called. Now here's what I want you to see. So that he is God, the word as God are not a part of the original text and should be yada. yada. Um, so let's see. Maybe it's not in that. All right, let's go here. The temple of God. Though the image is drawn from the Jewish temple, we may say with some confidence that St. Paul did not expect the Antichrist as a prose fact to take his seat in that edifice. Neither is the metaphor to be pressed in. Hey guys, Trey here. I apologize about that. Our stream was cut off right in the last part of that second segment. However, if you would like to know what was covered, please head over to BibleHub.com. Go under the commentaries and read several of the commentaries for those verses for uh, that were, I believe it was 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 and actually what I'll do is I'll go ahead and pull them up for you that way you know so let's head over to Bible Hub right now we'll check that out Um, let me find my Bible Hub app I apologize we're going to go to commentaries you're going to want to go up to that box where it has the books, click on Second Thessalonians, go to chapter 2, and we'll go to verse 4. And so, Ellicott, we saw what he was talking about. He said, The temple of God, though the image is drawn from the Jewish temple, we may say with some confidence that St. Paul did not expect the Antichrist as a prose fact to take his seat in that edifice. Neither is the metaphor to be pressed into a mere synonym of the church. And he references 1 Corinthians 3.17. The words so far need not necessarily mean that the man of sin will take special claims upon the Christian community as such. Rather, the whole phrase, taking his seat in the temple of God, is poetical and prophetical description of usurping divine prerogatives generally. If you head down to Barnes' notes on the Bible, when he talks about sitting in the temple, this is what he says. And he doesn't have his bolden. so just give me a second. So it says, or that is worshipped, and it says, um, sabasma, This word means an object of worship. It says, see Acts 17, 3, where it is rendered devotions. It may be applied to the worship of a pagan deity or of the true God. It may refer to a person, an idol, or a place. Probably Paul refers here to the heroes and other subordinate divinities of the heathen mythology. So if you are familiar with the worship of these Nephilim heroes, think Hercules, think Perseus, Think uh, Jason from Jason and the Argonauts, the Golden Felice. If you are not familiar, you can find excellent resource of this in Gary Wayne's book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Sitteth in the Temple of God. This is what Barnes says. Sitteth in the Temple of God. That is in the Christian church. It is by no means necessary to understand this of the Temple of Jerusalem, which was standing at the time of this epistle was written because, number one, The phrase, the temple of God, is several times used with reference to the Christian church. 1 Corinthians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 3.17, 2 Corinthians 6.16, Ephesians 2.21, and Revelation 3.12. Secondly, he says, the temple was the proper symbol of the church, and an apostle trained amidst the Hebrew institutions would naturally speak of the church as the temple of God. The temple at Jerusalem was regarded as the particular dwelling place of God on earth. When the Christian church was founded, it was spoken of as the peculiar dwelling place of God. See the passages referred to above. He dwelt among his people. He was with them and walked with them and manifested himself amongst them. Think of the Old Testament when they had the tabernacle, of the assembly it was among the other tabernacles or among the other tents that the Israelites would dwell in think the feast of tabernacles and a lot of uh a lot of you listeners that may still be in the modern church may not be too familiar with the feast of tabernacles i urge you to read about it and practice it it makes the bible come to life that was the whole point was god dwelling among you in a similar Habitation. It was a type and shadow of the Christian church. So if you come down here and you go down farther, you can find Matthew Poole's commentary. And all of these should be, if you just click commentaries, all of these should be on the same page. You can also download the Bible Hub app for free. And that should help out a lot um, because you can find all this stuff easily as well. Matthew Poole says this about the temple of God. It says the temple of God and has a question mark. 2 Corinthians 6.16, Revelation 3.12, but is a spiritual temple as the church is called, and he references 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 17. So Augustine, Jerome, Hilary, Chrysostom understand it, and he is said here to sit, to have his cathedra. The apostle speaks of him as a bishop whose episcopal, C is called a seat or cathedra. And here he sitteth as God. The popish writers give the pope that and such like titles. Dominus Deus, Noster, Papa, Edom, S Dominium, De, Et, Pape Tu, Es, Alter, Deus, in Terra. I have no idea what that means. It's been a while. I haven't studied Latin since the eighth grade. Now thou art another God on earth. I guess that's what it means. Uh, And then it references the writing that that is from. And as God, he maketh laws to bind the conscience and dispenseth with laws natural and moral. Well, that's telling, isn't it? He gets rid of God's law. Pardon sin as he pleaseth, past, present, and to come, can deliver souls out of purgatory and translate them to heaven. So that this man of sin is not to be looked for among the Turks, pagans, or infidels. He sitteth in the temple, the church of God, not that it can be the true church where he thus sitteth and acteth, but rather the synagogue of Satan, but that which he calleth so, and which beareth that name, and which before the falling away was really so. Romans 1.8 And as Jerusalem is called the holy city, and after it had lost its holiness... Matthew 4, 5, and the faithful city when becoming harlot, Isaiah one twenty one, And Mount Tabor as a holy mount, 2 Peter 1, 18. So you guys get the point. Um, these writers, before dispensationalism came along and said, yeah, an actual third temple is going to be rebuilt. What these writers did was they said, no, it's not. There's no reason to think that this temple is going to be rebuilt. Now, granted, there is a lot more to probably make people think that, because they actually have the blueprints and they have arted, they have like, um, they have like rendered art of it, and it's 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 a sight. I've I've actually seen the blueprints um, on, I've seen the blueprints on YouTube. It's it's it was it was interesting to say the least. However. What they point out is that, no, this is going to come from the body of Christ, or at least within a heretical group from it. Matthew Poole goes as far as to say, no, it's it's the office of the Pope, which really does make sense because the Pope, as the vicar of Christ, what that means if he's the victor of Christ, his position literally says that he is reigning in the stead of Christ. See, Antichrist doesn't just mean against Christ. It also means in place of Christ. Christ so what we have is we have these apostate leaders replacing the true Christ with their own anointed one so to speak and so um, there you have that and you got to be so so careful and so discerning read the scriptures for yourself Peter said that we were living stones in a tabernacle right New Jerusalem says there is no, uh, excuse me, the Apostle John said in Revelation that when New Jerusalem came down, there was no temple, right? Because Jesus and God were there, because we are the body of Christ. We are the temple of God. Paul says, Know ye not that your body is the temple? We as a congregation, we are the individual dwelling place of God when we talk about our individual bodies, but as a body of congregate believers, We are the whole temple of God, just as in the Old Testament, they would come to the tabernacle as a group and gather, right? That that was what they were told to do on the Sabbath. That's what they were told to do on the feast days. So the point that I'm really trying to hit home here is we have been lied to about this for years. And the danger here is people are not going to see this coming and they're going to fall for this Messiah that's going to stand on this pinnacle or the highest point of the church and take the honors of God. And you've got leaders like John Hagee. You've got leaders like Mark Biltz. These guys are going to fall for it hook, line, and sinker, and they're going to drag their congregations to hell. So, so, so important that biblical truth is taught through the doctrine of Christ. And don't listen to me. I'm just a guy with a microphone. That's all I am. All I want to do is get you guys into the scriptures yourselves. Those of you who may be where I was a few years ago, seeking as hard as you can after God, but you feel so empty because you don't know where to start. Start with the doctrine of Christ. Start with the law of God. Learn right from wrong. Learn what sin is. Learn the example of Jesus, and the word will come alive, I promise. And so... In our third in our third and final segment that was originally on the live stream that somehow got cut off, it's so convenient that everything got cut off right before the, the application was coming. Um But what we did was we talked about putting on the whole armor of God and how Matthew Henry actually read Matthew Henry's uh commentary on Luke chapter four because he he brings it in full circle. What he says is that Jesus fought the devil by quoting Deuteronomy 8, chapter 3, and I said earlier in that podcast that it was 8.13, and that was a mistake on my part, so I apologize. Nevertheless, what he says is Jesus fought with a sword, right? He said the word of God is our sword, and faith in the word of God is our shield. That weapon does no good if we have no faith to put into it. And remember, faith is not just the the lip service of saying, I believe. Because what did Jesus say about the Pharisees? He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We have to have an active faith like Abraham. Abraham believed, and it was counted unto him as righteousness, right? But Abraham didn't just say, I believe you, God. No, he actually left his home, went out, and when God told him he was gonna have a son in his old age, he believed him. He didn't know how it was gonna be possible, but he knew that God was a God of his word. So anyway... We see that when we put on the full armor of God, we are following the example of Christ with a helmet of salvation. That is, Jesus is our salvation, right? His word is our sword. His faith, our faith in his word is our shield, right? But Matthew Henry made another good point in his commentary on Luke chapter 4. He talked about how Jesus had fasted for 40 days. He said getting Jesus out into the wilderness was where the devil got an advantage, But where Jesus gave himself the advantage was being disconnected from his body for 40 days. And what that did was that took away his connection to his body. It gave him the edge over that temptation. And brothers and sisters, that's where I've always asked myself what the the spiritual significance of fasting was. I knew it was a sign of repentance because we cut off ourselves from things we need because our repentance to God is that important. But it also helps us disconnect from this mortal flesh and focus entirely on God, right? And so it gives one the devil one less thing to hold over us. And that was really, it, it was really amazing reading this commentary. And it, it just, it helped the scriptures come to life for me. It helped me consider things I had never considered before. And that's where the importance of having counselors and elders that know so much more than you is. You only have... One teacher, and that's the Holy Spirit, but he will put some godly men in your path to help lead you back to him if you'll let him. And so that is a very condensed version of what the third segment was, and I know I went over that fast, and I apologize, but that's, that's the importance here is the whole episode, the whole reason we went through the temptation of Jesus was so we could figure out what to do on our own. Another thing that we had covered was we looked at a pastor who was teaching his congregation to repeat mantras. Like I'm a child of God. I am important things that were not, there was nothing inherently wrong with them. They were all true, but we need to follow Jesus example. When we are tempted, we quote the scriptures and the scriptures only because the power of victory over temptation does not lie within us but within the word of God, right? Man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Guys, we're going to end that there. Thank you so much for sticking with us to the end. I apologize about this cluster of thoughts at the end, but I hope it is helpful. I hope you can put these things into practice. You can put on the whole armor of God, and that way you can be protected from the Fiery Darts of the Enemies. If you would like more information on the whole armor of God, I recommend heading over to FOJC Radio. You can find them on brightion.com, FOJC Radio, and check out their um, Puritan Spiritual Defense. I will try to put a link below if I can. If not, email me at Th at gmail.com. I'll be happy to get that out for you, but go check those videos out. They are phenomenal, and you'll see what it really means to put on the armor of God. All right, everybody, you guys have a wonderful night, and uh, we will see you next time on Course Correction Radio.